what that's meant is that there needs to be a shift from just more and more and more and more information. And that shift is already begun, which is the shift to the age of insight. What the age of insight is about is about people are craving clarity. They're saying, look, I don't need a thousand articles on how to fix or how to fix design or build a toilet. I need one YouTube video that shows me how to unclog the toilet right now. I just need the one piece of insight that's actually useful to me. We became entrepreneurs because more than anything, we want freedom. We want to be in control of our own schedule, income, and life. But unfortunately, that isn't always the reality of being a business owner. I'm Gillian Perkins, and I'm on a mission to take back entrepreneurship for what it's supposed to be. In every episode, I'll share with you how to get the most out of every hour you work so that you can work less and earn more. Let's get to it. Today, I'm joined by John Meese, the CEO of Cowork Inc., co-founder of Notable, and the host of the Thrive School podcast. John is an economist-turned-entrepreneur who's on a mission to eradicate generational poverty by helping entrepreneurs create thriving businesses. That's a mission that I'm personally passionate about as well, so when he recently reached out to tell me about his new book, I knew that I had to have him on the show. John's book is called Survive and Thrive, How to Build a Profitable Business in Any Economy, including this one. One thing that I know for sure is that we are not victims of our circumstances. Yes, we live in a very messed up world, but I firmly believe that we develop our character, expand our capacity, and learn invaluable lessons by working through challenges rather than letting them stop us. We all know how volatile the economy has been lately, and it seems very likely that it will get much worse before it gets better. So today, I'm looking forward to talking to John about what he's discovered about what it takes to build a thriving business in any economy. John Meese, welcome to Work Less, Earn More. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, my joy to be here, honestly. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here. And to start out, could you just tell us a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write it? I think... There's this little thing that happened um, last year, you may remember, called COVID-19. and uh, I may have heard of it. You've heard of it, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that was really where it all started, honestly, was that, you know, I've, I've built a few businesses. So I was working on my third business of launching a new co-working space company, Cowork Inc. And we opened our first location. Um, and it, by the way, I should say this is more of really, it's an entrepreneur-focused co-working space. So it's really an entrepreneur-centered first, co-working space second. The space being part of it, training and all of that being all other parts of the business. So we opened our first location in January of 2020, and 58 days later, we were closed by executive order, and we ended up being closed for 48 days. So not really a strong start to that business. But during that time, I started looking at that, and I was, of course, worried about my own business, but thankfully, I had a couple other businesses, so we were fine. I was able to refocus some of my energy. But I started to really ask, okay, if my goal here is to help entrepreneurs, and right now everyone's panicking, what should we do? And so I interviewed a few dozen of my really business mentors. I mean, people like Michael Hyatt, Pat Flynn, Ray Edwards, Mike Michalowicz, many other people who I'm sure you know and respect as well. And I just started asking them what's working, what's not working now. And one of the things that came up, the patterns that came up was that this wasn't the first crisis most of these people had been through. It's, you know, if you think like there's the you know, the 2020 economic crisis, of course, there is a health crisis, but I'm focused on the economic aspect. There's the, you know, 2008 housing crisis. In 2001, I mean, there's 9-11, and then there's the dot-com bubble. There's these multiple crises. 
as it turns out, there's this pattern. And I've, I have a degree in economics, and I worked at an economics research lab, and so I've seen the, the charts that roughly every 10 years, there's a major economic recession in the U.S. It's like, well, okay, wait a second. Why are we surprised every time this happens? The, the trigger's different, but there's a pattern here. Um, so that's really what inspired me, inspired me the, to write the book, was to dive into really from a combination of my own research and my experience uh, and these interviews to really pick to pick out what is the plan, what's the unshakable core of a business that can thrive, that can survive and thrive in any economy. And then I insisted on putting, including this one in the title, because no matter when you see that book on the shelf, <laughs> when someone's thinking, oh, how to build a profitable business in any economy, the first thought is, well, but oh, in th- including this one, you know, that's kind of the idea was to really emphasize that point. So this is really a long-term business move on your part, isn't it? Since you know this is going to happen over and over again. So your book is just going to stay like perennially relevant. (laughs) Well, the reality is that we don't have to have an economy that's built on recessions and crises all the time, but we do have one. So until that changes, which I'll be grateful for, by the way, when my book becomes irrelevant because there's not a crisis, I'll be fine. Um, But for the foreseeable future, it does seem like uh, this can be around for a while. One of the guests that I interviewed for my podcast and the interviews in the book as well, talks about how in the early 2000s, uh, I guess it was probably mid 2000s, probably about 2010, they produced this like highly produced video to promote their marketing agency. And it was talking about in these uncertain times and all that kind of stuff. And if and I never re- hear that phrase again, it'll be <laughs> Right. Well, after about a year, they thought we should probably update that video. And they went back and watched it and it was still relevant. And so they've ran that same video for at this point a decade and every year it feels <laughs> relevant. Um, so that's a little bit of what inspired this book is I want to, I genuinely believe that there, it doesn't have to be that way, that there is a way to build a business that can thrive no matter what's going on that's outside of your control. I love that. And, you know, I really do hope that someday we get to a point when, no, your book is not relevant. I kind of <laughs> doubt that we will. I mean, to be quite frank, because sure. it seems like people just don't learn. I mean, like you said, it's been happening every 10 years for an awful long time. Yeah. So, so I hope we get there. But for now, we have your book to help us. So... <laughs> That's the goal. That's the goal. So your book is called Survive and Thrive. Can you tell me a little bit what you mean by thrive? What does that mean to you, especially applied to a business? It's it's profitable, but it's more than that, right? I didn't want to lean on just a business being profitable because the reality is for a business to be successful, it has to be both efficient, where you're managing profit and time, investment, not just money as well, but also effective, where you're genuinely having transformation in the world and solving real problems and enjoyable, right? Because if you don't enjoy the work you do, it is not sustainable. So the word thrive for me captures this vivid image of, of, a, of a, just a plant, a living organism. And when you start to think of that, if you start imagining in your mind what a thriving plant looks like, it's green, it's luscious, there's probably some kind of fruit coming off of it. It's not alone in the middle of the desert, right? It's surrounded by other thriving organisms. And that's what excites me about thriving business. So a phrase I often say is that I want to help you build a business that fuels your life rather than the other way around. Because a lot of people who get into entrepreneurship do it for the freedom, right? They want to pursue freedom, whether that's financial freedom or lifestyle freedom of another kind, and they become slaves to the business. And it takes over their nights and weekends and their sleepless nights and their bank accounts. And and it's more that their life is fueling the business. And so Mm -hmm. when I say thriving business, I mean, yes, it's profitable. That's a prerequisite. 
but it's more than that. It's got to be fueling your life and making the world a better place. It sounds like an idea that's very aligned with work less, earn more. Yes, yes, 100%. Which part of the reason that I decided to go that route with this podcast and with my brand was because not only was that just an important balance in my life, you know, where I wanted to work less um, and not even not even work the typical 40 hours a week. But I saw so many entrepreneurs who I looked up to and respected as as leaders in especially the entrepreneurial space, right? Business leaders. And I, I really looked up to them. And I thought I wished, you know, that I had maybe what they had. And then I saw a little bit of the behind the scenes and I saw mm-hmm. that they were working those evenings, working those weekends. They talked about working, you know, 80 hours a week. And I was yeah. like, oh, may- maybe I don't want to trade places with you. You know, never mind. I'll go figure out my own way. So I love that, just that idea that you are promoting in your book. So I'm really curious to know, um, you talked about starting that co-working space and then getting shut down and then going and getting some advice from some of your business mentors and friends. I'm Mm -hmm. curious if the book Survive and Thrive is primarily kind of what you learned in that situation or did you go even further with it? Oh, I went much further with it. Uh, My editor told me this was uh, unusual which I guess myself as like a kind of like a just with a scholar, an academic background, it didn't occur to me, but there are 116 citations in my 200 page book, mm-hmm. uh, which my editor told me was uh, excessive, but I think it's appropriate. Um, so yeah, there's extensive research that I did here on some huge economic shifts that have been happen- happening over the last decade or so where the age of information is over. And that's a big thing. I mean, it's easy to say, but you think about there was a Stone Age once upon a time, and then there was a Bronze Age, and if and all of a sudden in the Bronze Age, if you were using stone, you were out of date. You were in a, you were no, you were irrelevant, and so the same thing just happened where we're shifting. And this is not an overnight process, but we're in the process of shifting from the age of information to the age of insight. Mm. So that's one of the biggest changes that's going on right now. So there's more things like that that I talk about in the book, but. I think that one's probably worth explaining a little bit. Would that be helpful? Yeah, definitely. I have all sorts of questions about that. You're the first person I've heard say that we're coming to the end of the age of information. And I'm really curious what evidence there is for mm-hmm. that. So it's not original to me. I think it's true, but it's actually from the World Economic Forum that they've identified this. And once I explain it, you'll see it too. So the age of information was characterized by, in the early 80s, um, then all of a sudden there was this access to computers, technology, internet, where information that used to be locked in books but, you know, or scrolls behind shelves in libraries or even in the encyclopedia collections, all of a sudden there became increasing access to all the information in the world. And that kind of culminated in the smartphone, where now if you have any question about anything in the world, Curiosity lasts about three seconds. You pick out your phone, you either talk to your phone or you type a couple words and you know the answer to whatever it is you want to know. So basically what you're saying is the scroll got replaced by the smartphone. Actually, the scroll got replaced by the scroll if you think about it. Um, if you go, if, <laughs> but, but, uh, just a different different use of the word. But mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that until you said it that way. But uh, yeah, I mean, and, 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 and all of a sudden there's also the, the gatekeepers died along the way because it used to be there was, you know, either a librarian or a mayor or a governor or a king or a president or a publisher who got to decide what information got to which people. But that's dead now. You can't control that. So that was that was what's exciting about the age of information. And that's why our world has shifted so much in the last 40 years. Well, we've gone through that shift. But what happened is in the last five years, especially our 
excitement shifted to overwhelm as we've spent most of our energy ignoring information, right? I mean, how much time and energy do you spend ignoring notifications, headlines, emails, Facebook posts, you know, newsletter sign-up requests? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, yeah. that, that so became much, right? <laughs> right, a lot of time. I mean, it's, I can, not quantitatively, but I can say like 99% of your energy. But no, Bloomberg did a study and saw that the average person faces up to 10,000 ads a day just between like all their interactions on social media, online, offline. That's insane. We don't have capacity for that. So what that's meant is that there needs to be a shift from just more and more and more and more information. And that shift is already begun, which is the shift to the age of insight. Now, mm. you're already on the front end of this, by the way, because you're already doing this. Because, yeah, as you're yeah. saying this, I'm like, yeah. this is exactly what my whole business is about with like Startup Society. You know, exactly. there's lots of different online courses out there, but at Startup Society, we really try to focus people into the basics of what they need to do to build their business. And we're all about stay focused and take action because people get so overwhelmed by all the information that's out there. So this is exactly what, exactly. You know, what we're trying to do. Right. So as I'm saying this, you're like, well, yeah, this makes sense. You didn't realize you're already actually one of the pioneers of the age of insight. But what the age of insight is about is about people are craving clarity. They're saying, look, I don't need a thousand articles on how to fix or how to fix design or build a toilet. I need one YouTube video that shows me how to unclog the toilet right now. I just need the one piece of insight that's actually useful to me. Or if I'm building my business, I need, I really don't need a hundred thousand ways to build my business. I just need the one way that'll work. And so we're looking for humans that we trust, for people that we trust to show us that they can, they can use their experience to filter information and give us the insight that we need. Because insight is information that's been filtered through experience. Um, and so that's where you see that in every, I mean, we, now, it's, now it's like, okay, who's your, your guru you know, for uh, your physical health, for your marital health, for your relationships? I mean, there's, this is just a shift that's already happening. So that's one of the things we talk about in the book. But yeah, so I took from the interviews that I took with those mentors combined with my academic research, combined with my own experience building three different companies, I just pulled all out of those a pattern, you know, essentially a system that like that is not again, this is not original to me, but this is all about insight, taking all that information myself and then filtering that down to say, look, here are the handful of things you need to do in your business that really actually are fundamentally crucial to your success. And if you do just those you will succeed. You don't need to do 100,000 things. And so that's the focus of the book. That sounds awesome. So, you know, full disclosure, I haven't gotten to read your book yet. I'm really looking forward to reading it when it comes out. But could you give me a little bit of kind of like context or, yeah, just help me to understand what the book is like in terms of how many different things do you cover that we should be doing to help our businesses to thrive in any economy? Yes. Well, so the book really walks through essentially a playbook. And by the way, you can get kind of the cheat sheet version of this if you go to johnmeese.com slash playbook, and then you can download this, but there's a PDF that walks it through. Of course, the book goes into much more detail, but you know, it starts with your purpose statement in your business, which is the way I structure this. And I've seen this done different ways. People call this your, you know, unique value proposition or selling proposition. But the way I, I craft that is saying I help real people solve real problem with real solution. And that's fundamental to your business because if you don't have clarity on who the real people are that you're serving, and this is, by the way, this is like the most important key in the whole book if you ignore everything else, and you want a business that succeeds in any economy, get clear on who the real people are that you're serving. Because what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the real people? So some people might call this your target customer and your avatar, but I want, you, I want to get clear on a real human being who has real problems that you want to solve. That's what business is built on because 
in the midst of a changing economy, like for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic and the, and the lockdown that came with that, the, re- the restrictions, the shifting global trade, all of that, there were billions of real people who had real problems. And so if you're in business and you're trying to sell a product and you're thinking, wow, man, how do I sell this product more? You're a little bit off base. You need to back up for a second and say, okay, do my customers, my real people, do they have more problems or less problems than they did before the crisis? And almost always the answer is more problems. And then if, once you recognize your job as an entrepreneur is to solve problems, then you create solutions to those problems, typically in the form of a product. Um, so it's real people in contrast to hypothetical people. Correct. I use the word real because a lot, really as a pushback to a lot of, uh, unfortunately, like at Silicon Valley venture-backed companies, they kind of lose sight of this. They talk about their you know ideal customer and they'll create this sort of fictitious person that may or may not exist. I mean, Juicero is a famous example of this where they raise, you know, over a hundred million dollars to build this huge startup company where they sell this, this machine. It's a $600 machine that sits on your counter to give you fresh juice every morning, which sounds like a good idea. And do you realize the way they did it was they sell these, you know, 10 or $15 protein packs that you get in the mail and you stick it in the $600 machine and it squeezes it with water into a cup. And then someone else realized, well, wait a second, can I just squeeze the pouch mm-hmm. in a cup without a $600 machine? And everyone said, yes, and the business failed. Um, yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> yes. So like, that's a and classic. I, I yeah. wondered so much, was it on purpose? Like, did they realize what they were building or were they delusional too? Anyway, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think it was a, well, I don't think it was on purpose that they built a failed company, but I think it's really easy to map out like, oh yeah, this product does all these cool things. And Mm -hmm. if you don't get clear on, does it solve a real problem in someone's life? Yeah. Then it's kind of irrelevant. Um, And by the way, when I say real problem too, again, I mean, this is, there's a lot of study that's been done about the problems that people care about, right? So you can literally go on Maslow's hierarchy of marketing he refers mm-hmm. to it as the hierarchy of needs, but mm-hmm. I refer to the hierarchy of marketing. <laughs> and just get clear of like your real people, are they focused on solving their immediate physical needs of like food, water? Are they focused on safety needs, like security? I mean, using COVID-19 as an example, everyone got knocked down to the bottom rung. They're wondering, how do I stay alive? And then they're wondering, how do I stay safe and secure? And do I have financial resources? And then they start rebuilding and climbing the ladder up a little bit to love and belonging to say like, oh man, I miss people. I want to connect with, how do I, how do I connect with people? Right. Yeah. It knocked people all the way down to the bottom, like you said. And I feel like it also shot them way up to the top real fast. You're like, I need all these things so much. <laughs> yeah. So yes, for sure. Because like the, the, I mean, toilet paper is a great example of this, right? That's like a physical need. And it's like dramatic. Everyone's I mean, selling is it. Is it a need really, out. John? Is it a need? We could well, okay. So okay. we installed a bidet. That, and that was our response. Personally, at home, we respond. We installed the bidet in response to the pandemic. So no. Yeah, those bidet need. sales they went through the roof, right? They they sold out. We got one of the last ones actually. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's the purpose statement: is the real people, real problem, and real solution. And real solution here is more of the category. Like it doesn't have to be just your one product. It's more how do you change someone's life? What's the transformation you're creating in their life? That's fundamental to a business. Um, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's just that's something that also can be timeless. You can improve that over time as you get to know your customers, but as technology changes, as culture changes, as economies change, the businesses that do the best are the ones that have clear on who they're serving, right? They're not serving, quote, 100,000 customers of X product, right? They're serving, you know, single mothers uh, with a lower middle class income who've got kids under the age of 12, you Mm -hmm. know? 
um, which might be a woman named Susan. Like, you know, it's even better if you have like a real life person, you can hang up on a picture of them on the wall and that's our real people we're serving. And in a world of billions of people, there's a lot of people like Susan. You know? Yeah, and I can easily see why you're saying this is so important for building a thriving business, especially in any economy, because if you are a company that can solve a real problem that real people have, if mm -hmm. you can do it reasonably well and at you know, a price that makes sense, then of course you're going to stay in business because if people have that problem, they're going to want your help. Yes, totally. Well, and um, like, for example, looking back at the Maslow's hierarchy for a minute, people who have kind of climbed to the top of the pyramid, you know, are in this kind of self-actualization or achieving your full potential, right? So the first industry that really died uh, during the beginning of the COVID-19 uh, industry, it was actually um, Instagram influencers that do nothing but post pictures of themselves on the beach in bikinis. That was the first industry that died because that's all part of this like fantasy level of like living your best life and, you know, achieving your full potential. And for people who feel the only people who can relate to that are people that feel like they're either at or on the cusp of that level in their own personal life, which is the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so that means you've already got your physical needs taken care of, your safety and security needs taken care of, you've got some love and belonging taken care of, you even got the esteem needs, which are like the respect of your peers or professional accomplishment taken care of, right? When everyone got knocked down, what those Instagram influencers or models didn't, they didn't have clarity in who the real people that they were serving were. And so that a lot of them just kind of kept saying the same things because they didn't know what else to say. And many mm. of them faded into non-existence. But if they had clarity in the fact on who the real people were, they were serving. So for example, let's just say there was a specific uh, Instagram influencer model who before 2020 was posting, you know, bikini pictures on the beach and living their best life. And everyone was excited about that. Um, and then the world changed. If they had clarity in the fact that their goal was to help young single women feel independent, right? And so maybe mm -hmm. before 2020, that was about travel and living your best life as alone and all that kind of stuff. Maybe now it's all about, it, it, it immediately shifts. And once you realize the real people, their needs have shifted, she could have Im immediately shifted her entire business model instead to, to helping young single women who had were independent and had moved out figure out how to support their lifestyle so they could stay out on their own instead of mm -hmm. having to move back home or you know take a job they weren't excited about or it, that's a completely different industry unless you get clear on the fact that the commonality is the real people. Mm -hmm. Or even just continue to inspire them to be independent, even in these times, I think. Um, sure. I remember I was following someone who wasn't, I would say, an Instagram model, but she was a, a travel influencer who took these really beautiful pictures of these like kind of crazy locations. Yeah. Um, and so when travel got shut down, she her content really shifted and she started just kind of posting some selfies and she talked a lot in her captions about how she was upset that she couldn't go and do the traveling mm -hmm. and take the pictures that she used to. Um, and I think it was probably really stressful for her both because she couldn't do that thing that she loved doing, but it also did really kill her business. Sure. And from the outside, I was just watching her and thinking, there's such an opportunity here because, you know, wherever you are in the world, if, if you go out and you look, there are beautiful things to take pictures of and you can take mm -hmm. really creative photography um, and you could be kind of shift your messaging a little bit to be talking about like finding the beauty around you. And it could oh, have yes. actually made it become much more relevant to her audience. And I think her audience could have fallen even deeper in love with her and her content when she inspired them to be able to do something similar in their own life. But instead, I think I felt like she just kind of like crawled into a hole, which you know, it's so hard when you're mm. on the 
when you're in the situation. So I don't blame her at all, but I just felt bad about the situation yeah. and wished that she could have seen the opportunity there. Most of us aren't Instagram models on the beach, right? So <laughs> what are some other ways that we can apply this to the businesses we're running? I guess I have one more question about sure. the, the real people, real problems. I think that's pretty, it, it sounds like common sense as soon as you say it, right? Of course my business is trying to solve a real problem for a real person, but like that's what a business does. But a lot of businesses don't quite get to that point, right? Their person mm -hmm. is more hypothetical, is more of just that, that hypothetical target customer. So what advice would you give to someone both to figure out, are they really solving a real problem for a real person? How can they figure that out? And if not, how can they get to that point? Well, one of my favorite frameworks to answer that question is actually comes from Ray Edwards. He's got a framework called the Open Buyer Awareness Scale or OPEN. And this, by the way, I would say in that purpose statement is where I see entrepreneurs go wrong the most where they can write down a problem, like I help real people solve, um, you know, uh, adding some more energy to their life or, or, or being, being more energetic or something like that, which is not actually a, a bad example of a real problem, you know, that you, mm -hmm. could, you could solve. But you've got to run it through this filter of getting to know the target customer. And by the way, getting to know them could literally just be talking to them. You know, mm -hmm. or at, you know, like yeah. it, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it could be. There's a lot of data out there <laughs> on consumers. And so that's available as well. But the question is, are they engaged and actively seeking a solution to this problem? Mm -hmm. So just to use another example, and by the way, the examples I give, like the Instagram model on the beach, are typically extreme because I find it's easier to grasp onto those. But of course, there's, you know, that's, that's a whole other, uh, th these principles still apply to everyday businesses. But in this example, let's assume you were going to start a, a health coaching business, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're, if you're helping people solve a real problem, you know, for example, that they're not eating well and you want to help them with their diet, one of the ways to get clear on which kind of people you want to serve is to get clear on who's actively engaged in seeking a solution to that problem. And this is where OPEN comes, for, comes through. The reality is if someone is overweight and eating poorly, you could tell them as a health professional all the reasons why that's bad for them. But if they're going to the drive through at McDonald's three times a day, and they feel fine, they're, oh, they're oblivious to the problem, right? It's not a problem mm. for them. You can say, yes, it is a problem for you. They're not, they're not, they're oblivious to it. And so you're going to be, you're going to just wear yourself out. You're going to lose your voice yelling at them to try to solve the problem. And they're not interested. Now, maybe that exact same person after a, uh, a month or two of this, one day after eating their third meal at McDonald's in the drive-thru starts to feel a little lethargic and kind of gets some like acid reflux and things like, oh man, you know what? I should probably eat better. And they pass into P, pondering, right? OP, pondering stage, where they're, they're thinking about solving the problem. Now, again, they're not ready for you yet. It's tempting to jump in and be like, yes, I knew it. See, I can help you. But they're actually still in the pondering stage. But the third level is where it really kicks in, and that's when they become engaged in actively seeking a solution to this problem. Now, that could mean, for example, the exact same person. It could just be that they're on a date with their wife and, or, you know, or their spouse, and their spouse says, hey, Lonnie, like, we should really take care of your health. And they say, you know what? You're right. I'm ready to take care of my health. Or it could be a doctor's appointment where the doctor said, hey, your blood work doesn't look so great. You just gained another 10 pounds. And they think, you know what? All right, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to solve this. I'm engaged in actively seeking a solution. Those are the dream customers because they want you to help them, right? You don't have to convince them. They're already looking for a solution. You just have to help them find find out that you, are this, that you have the solution and then deliver it to them. And then they're going to be grateful for it. Now, the fourth cat level, people who are in that N, so O-P-E-N, and they need the solution, you will help them, 
but do not build your business around them because this is the person who comes out of a meeting with their doctor that says, look, last week, you know, you barely escaped a heart attack because you're, you're, you're so, you've got so much, so many problems going on in your body. And honestly, if you don't drastically change something, I'm not sure I'll see you back here in six weeks. There's, they're so desperate for a solution that they will, they will seek you out and find you and buy 20 different products that might solve their problem. But if you build your business around them, you will sound desperate. You've probably seen these sales pages, right? Where the sales page is like, download this or die. You know, and it's like, mm-hmm. whoa, hold on a minute. You know, that may be true for some people, but you're, you're going to turn off a lot of people from being able to connect to you otherwise. So I find that framework to be the most helpful when someone's trying to clarify who their real people, real problem, real solution is, is running through that filter of, are they engaged and actively seeking a solution? The episode you're currently listening to was originally offered as a live stream inside Startup Society, our training program for digital entrepreneurs. Each week in the program, Gillian teaches a live workshop for startup members, including a teaching segment like what you're listening to right now, a tutorial segment that demonstrates how to take action on the lesson, and an open Q&A period where Gillian and guest experts work directly with each member. Members also get access to Startup Society's library of business training courses, monthly co-working sessions, and other events, and our private community forum. If you're looking for affordable business training, mentorship, and accountability, then visit startupsociety.com forward slash podcast to learn more about the program and apply to join. Now here's Gillian with the rest of today's episode. Okay, so let's let's try to cover maybe like two more of the main things that a business needs to do to thrive in an economy. So okay. if you can only cover two more, what is yeah. the next essential? The next essential would be to have a to have one growth model. Not 100 ways to grow your business, but have one growth model. And in the book, I cover five different growth models um, that pretty much cover all the options of how to grow your business. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Reese in the book of The Lean Startup you know, really identified the first three, the fact that you can have a, a viral or word of mouth growth marketing model, which honestly could include organic social media, but also could include you know, reviews, collecting reviews from customers and word on the street, depending upon your business model. Then there's paid growth model where you're using paid advertisement either on social media or uh, billboards or podcast sponsorships. All those fit under that paid growth model of where you're paying money to get featured in front of people that you want to then engage with your business. The third is sticky growth. That one is, I would say, the most challenging to start with, but it's really incredible if you get it. And that's irreplaceable infrastructure in someone's business. So QuickBooks is actually a, the best example of this, where it's like if you're using QuickBooks to manage your financing and your, your finance and your business, like your accounting, your payroll, your taxes, all like you're never going to switch. It doesn't really matter if someone comes over to you and they're like, hey, I've got a platform that's like $5 a month cheaper, and it's got this one other feature. You're like, yeah, okay, I've got years of financial history in QuickBooks. I'm not touching it. I'm not switching. And so because of that, QuickBooks can afford to spend a lot of money on cold sales calls and huge expensive sponsorships at business conferences just to be perceived as the authority. Things that actually have a really low conversion rate because once they you're in, you're in. So mm-hmm. that's the third sticky is sticky growth. The fourth uh, is, so these are the two that then I added to that because I think they're different. You know, one of them is SEO growth, search engine optimization, um, okay, which yeah. is actually much like word of mouth marketing. It's just they're robots instead of people that are spreading the mm-hmm. word. And, and the fi- it, mm-hmm. it is distinctly different, really, yeah. because in that first situation um, with the word of mouth marketing or even social media, really, it is like you're saying other people who are telling you right. about this company. Whereas here, you're kind of going out and you're finding it yourself in this organic. It's kind of like you're looking it up in the phone book, right? 
Exactly. But in the phone book example, it's sort of like the phone book is referring you, you know, or like referring mm-hmm. the business to you. In this case, like Google is. So like there's a referral process going on, but it's not, yeah, like you just said, it's not at all like word of mouth marketing. And so it's its own thing. And the fifth is affiliate growth. Now, affiliate growth is different from paid growth because in paid growth, you pay first and hope you get results. In affiliate growth, where you have affiliates grow your business, you pay them a commission only once they've achieved results. And so Mm -hmm. it's a different dynamic. So this is the five growth models. So you basically, you have to pick one of those and just focus on it. I mean, that's the key is you can have a secondary growth model, maybe spend a little, like, you know, but think of it like 80-20, spend 80% of your energy on the growth model that's driving results in your business. If you really want to experiment with a second one, do it, but you don't have to. You really just need one to work. So that, that so would when be, you say yeah. the, mm-hmm. the next thing you need to do is to choose one growth model mm-hmm. and focus on it is you're saying as opposed to having multiple growth models that you're kind of spreading yourself too thin over, Correct. not just choosing a growth model over not having a growth model. For sure. The reality is we're all doing something to grow. We mm-hmm. may not call it a growth model, though. We're like, oh, yeah, I post on social media and like I paid for that one, um, you know, s- sponsorship at a Chamber of Commerce event, you know, and then I have a podcast. You know, it's like it, we're all doing a little bit of this, but it's just the mm-hmm. question is just like, what's your growth model? Pick one. Hyper focus on that, you know, and yeah. Again, this is so aligned with what I find myself teaching Good. so often, right? When I say, you know, you need to focus on one platform. In, because so many people, they try to just post on all the different social media, a little bit on Twitter, a little mm-hmm. bit on Instagram, a little bit on Facebook. Oh, yeah, I'll put up a YouTube video. And then they wonder why nothing's happening. But when you focus on one primary marketing method, then that's when you're really going to see results there and you're going to get that exponential growth. Exactly. You know, create the real momentum. And so I love, you know, you're kind of zooming out here from something mm-hmm. that I typically am talking about. But this is a, such an important discussion as well, just thinking about these different marketing methods. So sometimes people think like, oh, I don't don't have, um, I don't have a sales funnel. Whenever I talk about sales funnels, people mm. are like, oh, this, you know, this sounds complicated. I, I don't think I need a sales funnel. I'm like, if you're making sales at all, you have some sort of sales funnel. And then right. I'll explain like some really simple analogies of different, or examples rather, of different types of businesses and what their sales funnels look like, whether they intended to build a quote sales funnel or not. And so I see here that what you're saying that if a business is making sales at all, they have one of these growth models or they're at least Mm -hmm. using pieces from different growth models, but they can get bigger, better results and, you know, be a more sustainable company long term if they focus in on one growth model rather than just posting an ad on Facebook, putting an ad in the newspaper, doing some networking at their, you know, their chamber of commerce and then wondering why they're not really growing the company very quickly. Exactly. And you just hit the nail on the head. It's just everything here is all about focus. And and by the way, here's a little behind the scenes secret. The entire book is basically about how to create a sales funnel. Because it's like, who's your target customer? How do they reach you? What happens next? What's their first mm-hmm. yes in your business? What's the first dollar in your business? It's basically, I mean, it doesn't say that anywhere in the book. But that's basically what it is. I mean, that's, it's, it's just, it's just a, it's, it's sort of like the master funnel for your business, you know? So the idea is kind of, like in order to make money in a business, right, you need to have a sales funnel. And if you have a sales funnel and you truly have all the pieces of it, you will make money. Mm -hmm. So you can survive and thrive in any economy if you build each piece of your sales funnel, you know, truly strong. Yes. Well, and I think a lot of people do the top of the funnel, you know, in sales funnel talking as being sort of like, you know, 
the opt-in or maybe it's a social media platform if I get people to you, but I go one level higher and say, no, it's actually the, the choice of your purpose statement of who, who you're serving mm-hmm. in your business. That's actually the top of the funnel. And so if that needs to shift, the whole funnel needs to shift. The whole business needs to shift. Um, but that's basically the top of the funnel. So do we have time for one more? Yeah, we have time for one more. Let's do it. Okay. So this is, um, this is something that I found to be incredibly, um, incredibly helpful. And I don't actually see enough businesses doing this. So I have lots of stories in the book about how you could introduce this to your business, but I really hope people test me on this and see if it dramatically increases your revenue, because I think it will, is that you really only need, I say, think, I also know from personal experience, I should add that. Um, you really only need three core products in your business to thrive. Now you can have other products, but, but if you have these three, it's going to go much better. So the first is your gateway product. Now this is like a, you know, and I think you teach something similar to this. This is sort of like a, a painless purchase. Uh, the mm-hmm. idea here, some people might call this a tripwire, but whatever industry you're in, the idea of having an opportunity where someone who's on the fence about trusting you to solve their problem, where they can say, I'm thinking about trusting you, but I'm not ready to put a, pull out my whole wallet. And you say, well, what if you were just to buy a $5 or $10 or $20 version of the experience, and then your job with that gateway product is to exceed their expectations. It's not to say, okay, they bought my $5 product, so I'm gonna give them $5 worth of value. No, it's actually the whole purpose of that product is to earn their trust. And so that gateway product is just that kind of step in the door. And then on the flip side of that, if you have a flagship product, I mean, think of this as sort of like the, you know, the, the big kahuna or the epitome of your full transformation of, your, of, your, of everything you offer. The reality is in most businesses, less than 10% of your clients are ever going to buy your flagship product. But just the fact that it's there gives people something to aspire to. It's a way of communicating your vision as a leader of your business of what you stand for. And the people that do go into that and they go all in and get the full transformation, that's typically going to be your most expensive product. And so you're going to get a lot of revenue from that. Yeah, and, and the, I think it also yeah. serves for the purpose of price anchoring as well, yes. where it makes your other products, it increases their perceived value when people see that you have this premium product that you offer as well. And so they want at least a little piece of that pie. 100%. That's a great point. Uh, the third of the three is your continuity product or your subscription product. So Startup Society being an example of that. But the mm-hmm. idea being that this is sort of like the glue that holds everything together. So for someone in between specific purchases in your business, how do they engage with you and become what John Warlow calls an automatic customer? And that's typically through some sort of subscription. It's a way to just stay and keep that customer engaged and also to continue adding value. So if you have those three, a gateway, a continuity, and a flagship product, everything else you build, if you, if you choose to build any other products, because you don't have to, I believe they should be either an, a complementary or supplementary product to one of those three. So think of them like as either an add-on or a downsell, you know, but the idea is that if you build everything around those three, you still have to have a relationship back to them because that communicates to customers what you stand for. If you have a product that is completely unrelated that you can't trace back to either your gateway, your continuity, your flagship product, it probably doesn't belong in your business. What do you think about if you have a couple products that you know, if anything, they'd probably, if they're one of these three types of products, they'd be mm-hmm. like a flagship product, but they're more like parallel products. So they serve maybe different segments of your customers. How mm. do you think that confuses the issue? How could that be simplified? I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So that would be what I would call a supplementary product. So the idea being that like, you know, I guess if you're a Chick-fil-A and you're checking out and you're like, do you want a waffle fries or a fruit cup? It's like, well, they're both side items. They're supplementary mm-hmm. products to each other. And similarly, we're talking about different, you know, parallel products here. Um, 
I find it's incredibly helpful to have, you know, a default um, flagship and then mm-hmm. have some, but make it clear, just make it clear. I mean, you don't have to call them a supplementary product. That's probably a mouthful, <laughs> but making it clear that they're related, that they're, you know, that, so someone's not looking at this going like, whoa, okay, wait a second. If I want to go all in with your business, I've got to buy five different $2,000 products. You know what I mean? Like, like don't, yeah. don't give them that experience. Instead, make it clear you have one flagship product and then you can make it clear, by the way, we have specialized versions of this experience for you know different audiences. And the same thing goes to the gateway product. There's no reason why you can't have multiple gateway products, right? But you have to remember the purpose here is not actually to make money off of that gateway product. It's, a, it's meant to be a painless purchase so you can earn someone's trust. Um, so I wouldn't recommend having more than one continuity product. There's already a huge problem with people having sort of uh, subscription overdose, you know, mm-hmm. and, and going through and canceling all their subscriptions because they just feel overwhelmed by the amount of recurring payments they have. So I wouldn't recommend more than one, but uh, you could have more than one gateway product, though. Yeah. So I definitely, you know, I, I know and I see the value of the continuity product, both as a consumer and as a business owner. I mean, in my business, having a continuity program and product, it creates a much more stable source of revenue for my business. Yeah. So I do, you know, really appreciate that. But even as a consumer, I find that there are some brands, and I think this happens all the time, actually, where I'll buy something and I love it, but then I'm not quite ready for the next big purchase yet. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm thinking of maybe like a clothing brand. I buy a dress. Oh, I love this dress. It's my favorite dress, but it's, you know, $300. So I'm not going to go out and just buy another one tomorrow. But then I forget about the brand because I, you know, I'm not continually buying some small thing. So even if it's not actually straight up a subscription, having at least some small products that people can buy in the meantime, or actually a subscription, you know, maybe every month Mm -hmm. they're sending me a style guide even. Um, Maybe it's even just an email that I'm getting something to keep them front of mind. Yes. Obviously, preferably something paid there. Well, that's really curious, though, yeah. how this framework applies to businesses that don't have this kind of clear distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking about, I mean, you mentioned Chick-fil-A, okay? Do they have a flagship product? Oh, Should that's they? a great question. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Okay, I want to get to Chick-fil-A. And I actually worked at Chick-fil-A for six years. I was a training director there. So <laughs> I know a lot about Chick-fil-A, so I can talk about that. But if I could go back to the dress for a second. Oh, for sure. This is dangerous. I knew putting this in the book, but one of the examples that I repeatedly reference in the book is a, is a women's boutique and how they could actually apply this whole framework to their business. Oh, well, that's and, actually was my other example I was going to ask you about. Like, what if I'm an Etsy seller and I sell like t-shirts on Etsy or something? Oh, that's cool. Do I need to have a flagship product? Like, do I need to sell something really expensive or can I just sell all these $15 t-shirts? Yeah. Oh, okay. So we, I mean, you could, right? Can you? But the goal here is work less, earn more, right? So mm-hmm. like, could you have 100 products? Yes. Do you need 100 products? No. Um, but to come back to the women's boutique example, the example of a continuity product that I give in the book is actually that imagine if there was a woman's clothing brand or store near you that had an option where, where um, you know, $1,000 once a quarter, they would do a seasonal refresh of your wardrobe. Where you would come in and they would they would they they know like what the weather's changing your wardrobe needs are changing and that would include some wardrobe outfit changes but then of course you're also probably going to buy a couple of the things while you're there um, but that would be that's an example of a continuity product that kind of is a little more out of the box so we're not talking about a monthly subscription education website because that's what I've run those you've run those and so it's easy to jump to those but it's more of an out of the box solution that I know for okay I probably wouldn't subscribe to that but my wife would. You know, of being able to actually just have someone who, again, coming back to the age of insight, 
going into a clothing store where you've got someone right there who's the expert to tell you, great, come back here. I want to work with you and help you look at what you've got currently in your wardrobe. Some of these pieces we can still use in the summer, but let's add you a couple other things in there. Maybe instead of a sweater, we're going to get a couple more kind of maybe a, a lighter jacket of some kind that you feel comfortable in and in the hot sun. Whatever that might be, I'm definitely going beyond my expertise if I say anything else about clothes. <laughs> but, um, but the idea there being that that's a, that's a phenomenal continuity product, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, that's really just or you know yeah. a completely different ver- well very similar but different yeah. version of that would be you could subscribe for like a personal stylist from that store mm-hmm. or maybe you're paying a hundred dollars a month to have an appointment with that personal stylist every month and essentially what they're doing is they're coaching you through the sale right exactly that's exactly <laughs> what they're doing right um i know oh my gosh i don't think there are many men's clothing stores left in the world but i would do that i you know like it seems like the assumption i think is this and men that buy clothes on amazon and target now but I don't. What I, I what, even if I walk into Target, I I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I need someone to tell me what to wear. <laughs> but um, yeah. So back to Chick Fil A. So like Chick Fil A and Apple are two examples of huge companies that kind of like they actually follow this a little bit, but they change the mold a little bit. So like for Apple, for example, the iPhone is their flagship product. You kind of have to have the iPhone to be in their world, right? So it's not mm-hmm. less than 10% of their customers. It's almost all their customers that have the iPhone. But that's where over 60% of their revenue comes from. And then, of course, they have subscriptions with Apple Music. Um, and they've got App Store fees that are also tied back to the iPhone. You know, So they've got their own version of this. Um, so your flagship product doesn't have to be your most expensive product. No, I no. would have, based on what you'd said at first, I would have thought yeah. their flagship product was like MacBook Pro or something like that. No, it's more about it's more about what defines the, the you know really the full experience of your brand. I see. You know, and MacBook Pro is more of like a you know it's it's essentially it's a it's a supplementary pro product, right? It only fits a certain subsect of their of their customer base where it makes sense for them. And so I think for, we're also, by the way, we're we're talking about now like multi billion dollar companies with mm-hmm. you know like huge teams, and so. Sure. My assumption here is that when you're building a thriving business, you're, that's not where you're starting, right? And so that's this what this framework is really built for sure. is um, much smaller businesses. And Chick-fil-A, ironically enough, I gave earlier the example of like the waffle fry or a fruit cup, which one you wanted. Chick-fil-A's highest selling product by far is the waffle fry. It's actually like mm-hmm. not, um, it's not the chicken sandwich because they have so many different, at this point, they have so many different varieties of chicken sandwiches. You can do the chicken sure. sandwich or the spicy sandwich or the nuggets or the strips, whatever. So I don't know that they would say this, but I might argue that the waffle, Chick-fil-A waffle fry might be their flagship product. But mm. yeah, but they're also, again, a business that's now, uh, I forget exactly how old they are, more than 50 years. But, you know, but again, they're a multi-billion dollar company who's mm-hmm. got a much more complex business. They're not trying to build, they're not doing a work less, earn more. They're doing a business where they're hiring you know, thousands of employees you know, to operate thousands of locations to pull off their uh, yes. So, you, so with this framework, with these three core types of products, mm-hmm. you're not saying that this framework describes every business or describes every successful business. You're more saying that this is a model that a small business can use to to grow and to be really sustainable in different Correct. economies and to be really strong. Exactly. Because if you have those three, those three products might not change whenever there's a crisis or just some kind of shifting in the economy. But it's more all of your ancillary products that do. But they might, right? I mean, like if you're real people, if their life changes enough, you might need to redefine your gateway product, your continuity product, and your flagship product. Um, But it's also, there's also the luxury of just saying it's okay. You don't have to have 100 products. Mm -hmm. You can literally just have three and you'll be okay. And you you can build a very successful business with just those three. I mean, you can, I mean, I've seen, 
and worked in multi-million dollar businesses that just have those three. And I've seen that for sure in my own business as well, having those three different types of products. And that really is, I mean, my business model. Sometimes we add on an additional product that maybe is an add-on type product, an upsell Mm -hmm. or a downsell. Um, But whenever I kind of confuse the issue by trying to add a second, you know, continuity product or something like that, that's when things get more complicated and more messy. So I completely agree with what you're saying here. And so I think it's, it's both sides of this. It's both, you don't need to have more than three products, but mm-hmm. also having these three products makes your business a lot stronger than if you only have one or two of them. Exactly, exactly. And you can, you can build a successful business on just one or two of these, right? If you wanna do it the yeah. hard way, that's fine. You can, you can do that if you wanna do it the hard <laughs> way. I'm just trying to help. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you certainly can. But I agree with what you're saying, which is just that it's easier to build a stronger business if you have one product in each of these three categories. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us. We're about at times we need to wrap this up momentarily. But I'm curious if you have any maybe parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the listeners today. I I would say um, we talked about the shift from the age of information to the age of insight. And that's huge. I mean, right. I mean, I got the nerd glasses on, so I get to kind of sit and think about that. You don't have to think about that too much, but it's a big deal. But one of the other biggest shifts that's happened globally um, in the last few decades is we've shifted to what uh, some economists call the attention economy. And the fact that mm. it used to be that business was built on supply and demand, right? I mean, if you ever took Econ 101, you probably saw this graph of supply and demand crossing each other, and that's where the price is. It's where supply meets demand. But the problem is today, it's actually not a problem. It's wonderful. Supply for almost everything is almost infinite. So today, who's really in control are attention brokers. It's whoever owns people's attention. If you have people's attention, then you are in control of the new economy. All that matters is demand. So when we're talking about building an audience or or building a business, that's why it's so crucial to get clear on whose attention you're trying to get because that is the most important decision to what your success looks like. The products and all that, that's all secondary. Um, it's about whose attention do you have? Mm, that's very interesting. I made a little click in my mind. I've definitely heard of the attention economy, and I'm very familiar with supply and demand curves, but I hadn't made the connection between those two things. And specifically with that piece about the supply now being in some ways infinite, in other ways still right. very much limited, right? But yes. in some ways we have this kind of like unlimited supply now. And so, especially if you're thinking about this from the business perspective of how do how does the business make more money? It's not about figuring out how can I supply more to the to the market, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I would argue that that was also true in the past. It just has become even easier now. Sure. But even well, in the past, you know, as a business, the problem wasn't like, how can I make more stuff? <laughs> that well, wasn't the problem, right? Depends how yeah. far back you go back in history. But like books, for example, especially now with ebooks or audiobooks, how many copies of your ebook can you sell? All of yes, them. Yes, so definitely <laughs> in that situation. But I would argue even far, far back because if the price, if there's enough demand, if mm-hmm. you have the demand, then the price will be higher and then you can create more. Sure. So, of course, there are some limited resources, right, that we have here on Earth. But, um, for most things, if if the price is high enough, then you can create the supply. You're the economist. Tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, that's true. It's true, for, especially now. I mean, it, it you know there was a point where in the past you go far enough back and you go, yeah, maybe somebody in you know Germany, if they had everyone's attention and really wanted to produce like a really great gluten free sandwich, maybe they could have found enough supply to supply all of Germany with that. But if the ingredients were stuck in America, they would have 
never been able to do that. And so that's where, with the internet-connected world we have today, where you can communicate in an instant, get access to any, pretty much anything, um, and you can 3D print anything or digitally copy and, and endlessly, it's just supplies just so much a non-factor. Mm-hmm. Really, just it's just attention is what matters. So, Well, thank you again so much, John. This has been fantastic. Uh, where can people go to find your new book? So if you go to surviveandthrivebook.com, you can get a, uh, a copy of the book. Um, it's available in, you know, but in all the formats, but if you buy it in a paperback uh, and go in there and, and put your information in for the bonuses, I'm actually going to give you the ebook and audiobook for free. So, and there's a course that goes with it called Built to Thrive. Um, then this playbook that I mentioned, I think you'll find valuable. So, yeah, please check it out. I hope you'll find it valuable. I and mean, if you're on the fence, there's plenty of reviews and endorsements from there from people who've said very nice things about the book. <laughs> so, excellent. Well, thank you so much, John. I can't wait to read the book myself. Thank you. All right. Well, that is everything for today. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful and you would like to participate live in future recording sessions, then be sure to visit startupsociety.com slash podcast to learn more about all the benefits of membership and apply to join. And finally, it would be a big help if you left Work Less, Earn More a review on Apple Podcasts. Not only will this help us reach more people, but it's also going to give you the chance to potentially win a 12-month membership to Startup Society. All you need to do to enter is post your review on Apple Podcasts, then email a screenshot to contact at gillianperkins.com. Thanks again so much for listening. Now let's wrap this up. I'm Gillian Perkins, and until next week, stay focused and take action. We'll be right back.